Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, Ben is hosting a conversation with Dr. Phil Glasgow. Phil is currently the head of physiotherapy and rehabilitation at Ireland Rugby Football Union, having previously held the position of head of sports medicine at the Sports Institute of Northern Ireland for 14 years. He was also the chief physiotherapy officer for Team GB at the Rio 2016 Games, where he led the physio team to the most successful British Olympic team history. This episode has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyse neuromuscular strength, performance and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyses them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more, head over to our sponsor, VolPerformance.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast, and here is today's episode between Ben Ashworth and Dr. Phil Glasgow. So, uh, welcome to another episode of the Inform Performance Podcast. I'm delighted today um, to have our guest on, Phil Glasgow, who I've spoken to a lot over the last couple of months. And um, Phil and I met a few years back when we were in Olympic sport together. Um, really great to have you on today, Phil. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation, Ben. Great to be with you. Phil, for the benefit of those people who perhaps haven't come across you, do you mind just sketching out your background and um, and take us up to what you're doing currently at the moment? Yeah, uh, how long have you got? Um, but um, <laughs> it's it's one of those, hey, I think like a lot of people, a bit of a winding journey starting out, not really knowing what I wanted to be uh, when I grow up. And as my kids remind me, I, st- they, I still don't. But um started life as a physio. Um, and, well, I still am, but I did a physio degree, did the usual things around work in health service and, and various sports. Um, interested in research, was always curious to to not... Uh, curious about what was happening but also very keen not to be pigeonholed into one thing so uh, having done a couple of masters masters of research did phd looking at muscle damage and muscle physiology then i went did another masters in theology and philosophy and and uh, try to sort of bring that together in terms of how i can develop myself develop people uh, ongoing research and visiting professor at ulster uni and uh, worked in olympic sport for nearly 15 years through the sport Institute networks within the UK headed up sports medicine in the Northern Ireland Institute and uh, worked a number of Olympics uh, chief physio with Team GB there in 2016 in Rio and uh, uh, now I'm, I'm head of physiotherapy and rehabilitation for the Irish Rugby Football Union and as well as doing other consultancy stuff still active in research and academic and teaching and some coaching as well so um, a little bit of a mix so I suppose it depends who I'm talking to <laughs> how they view me perhaps how I describe myself. Yeah, a, uh, a very colourful, very colourful background there. The other thing is you're a dad, it's your son's birthday today, so happy birthday to him too. Uh, Charlie's 12 today, I've got two, he's my uh, middle child, two others, and my daughter was uh, 10 uh, two days ago, so it's birthday week in the Glasgow house, so uh, yeah, <laughs> partied out, too, too much uh, um, unhealthy food and parties uh, for, for kids, but it's all good. So I'm going to dive sort of straight into the conversation and we 
we had a, a great chat, which I wish I'd recorded actually when I was walking the dog. But um, yeah, one of the things we spoke about was um, an area which I think you know you're you're really interested in is this idea of how we're making good decisions. You know, so yeah, I just wanted you to be able to sort of talk about that um, and give a bit of your perspective to the listeners. Yeah, I, I think. Um... Whenever we, whenever we start out, uh, we, we do a lot of stuff to we around how we become technically very good, how we, we evaluate the evidence in you know, clinical uh, expertise in terms of assessment of uh, athletes or patients, and we look in, in the critically appraised evidence. And, but all the time, we're, f- we're faced with making lots and lots of decisions all the time. And so the, the question is, how, you know, how can we get really good at that? And and I, I think one of the things that I've realized over the last number of years is the ability to make better decisions or, or to think well and to think clearly is perhaps the greatest skill that we can develop over time. Um, because we, we, we're never in exactly the same situation, and, uh, you know, two times, if you like. And so I think that ability and the people who I look at and think are really good, they, they almost feel like they're... Bit like you know, when good footballers or good um, sports players, they feel like they've got more time on the ball. People who are really good, I think they, they just feel like they make good decisions and they've got better cognitive bandwidth, if you like, to be able to go, okay, what's important here? What, what do I need to do? Make a good decision that, that produces good outcomes for everyone, not just for themselves or for that moment in time, but it's it, they see the big picture beyond the big picture, if you like. So I think that's yeah. something that... I think, personally, I think that's like any skill uh, that we can develop. We can get better at making good decisions and we can get better at paying attention to what's important uh, and therefore hopefully be more effective. Yeah, so, you know, how, how do you go about sort of improving that skill and you sort of said we can we can train that a little bit. So how, how do you improve that skill? Yeah, I think um, it, it's... Uh, the guys I work with often um, are probably sick of me hearing this, but it's a little bit about learning what to pay attention to uh, is is the term that I like uh, to um, talk about. And so, you know, a number of years ago, uh, a, a colleague and uh, friend asked me, you know, I was doing some mentoring work with him and he said, you know, Phil, what's, what's the biggest difference between now and 10 years ago? And, at that stage, I said, ah, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Like A lot of the stuff you do is quite similar. Of course, you, you update and you change, but what's the biggest difference? And, and at that stage, I answered him and said, well, well, it's all just a bit clearer. Um, and I think that still holds true. But if I had to answer that question now, I haven't thought about it over time, is I would say I, I probably know what to pay attention to a little bit better. I know the things that are important and where there's noise that I need to screen out, but actually the stuff that's really important to give your attention to. And that's the stuff then that influences our decision-making. So that, if you like, decisions for me have to carry with them some practical component to it. There there has to be a good outcome. It has to, you know, you know, I always say it has to be good for me, good for you and good for the project. Um, and so once you understand what a good outcome is, and all the factors may contribute to that and the ability to screen out what's important and maybe what's not important. I think this stuff then starts to come together to help us um, make better decisions. And and so I think you, I'm sure, Ben, you've got lots of examples where we've made decisions and we reflect on the outcome. You know, you make a decision about a player or you make a decision about um, someone you're managing or, or about your even your own personal life. And 
depending on the outcome of that, you reflect on that a lot and determine, hey, if I was in that position again, what would I do differently? What were the things that led to a good outcome? What were the things that didn't lead to a good outcome? And, and to evaluate that and, and have a, a really good conversation with your environment, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And often the sort of one of the pitfalls of the of the sort of elite performance environment is we perhaps don't create time to reflect and, and close that feedback loop, you know, and I, I think we certainly from my own perspective, the best work I do is when I'm able to look back at something almost in the moment rather than letting it slip and, you know, get to the end of the season. Let's say you look back on a hamstring injury rehab, but you do it six months later, it's not going to be as effective as, as closing that loop relatively quickly afterwards and then allowing that to impact on the next time that you you're in that situation so yeah i, I hear that massively yeah and, and you, you know you use the term there about reflection and reflection and you know i think people who are really good at this they they are able to learn how to i think reflect uh, i've always said in on and for action so you know, yeah. reflect in the in the moment of doing it. You're actually reflecting on what's happening here and how is this going, and and then you reflect on the the stuff the stuff that you're about that you've done, and and then actually it's that feed forward mechanism. You're going, okay, what's happening here? You're able to reflect what happened before. Now, what can I do? So that ability to have because sometimes we talk about reflection being looking back, but I think um, to reflect or to to uh, think about. Uh, on it, it can can happen almost before the event, um, in yep. the and after the event, and I, and I think that's where you really start to, to squeeze every bit of learning out of it, if you like. Yeah, the sort of pre mortem rather than the post mortem um, approach yeah. for sure. Yeah, 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 and 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 then I think you you start to you start to notice trends, and you know I think this idea of sense making, you know, where you start to and make sense of certain things that happen and are able to start to make connections and recognize that you know, when I make better decisions, it's when I've shown up like this. You know, hey, we, yeah. we all can think about times when we've been tired or we're under pressure and there's a hundred different things going on and, and we make a bad decision or we make a, a suboptimal decision, probably, is a better way to put it. And, and you know, there's lots of stuff contributes to that. And I think if we recognize, you know, when, when am I at my best? What are the things that help me good, make good decisions what are the things that support me being in that position what are the things that tend to distract what are the things that maybe pull away some of my energy so what are the, some of the the negative things or what are the things and, and pressures from outside people that can influence my thinking okay now what can i do about that you know and and, and so i think the the reflection always has to be associated with action yeah yeah i'd agree so we um we're both sort of physios by trade or by background and I know you you you've worked in a number of performance environments now you know most recently obviously Ireland rugby but certainly with some hugely uh, influential performances from the Olympic team side as well back in Rio we as physios often when you're working with coaching teams can get branded as being quite protective over people and this kind of looking at injury prevention um and I've found certainly over the last few years in taking on my new role that you know, to try and shift across to that sort of more performance mindset is something we've spoken about before. But, um, you know, what are, what are some of the, your thoughts around that with this idea of kind of shifting from injury prevention to a more performance mindset? 
Yeah, and and you know the injury prevention work and and movement has been really helpful, and so um, but there is a sense where inevitably I think it's human nature that if it's about preventing something, it's always a hard sell, isn't it? And and there's a sense where the physios of the medical team almost become the grim reapers. You know, okay, who who do I have? Who do I not have? Um, And and they they take it on themselves. They will actually, we will measure our our effectiveness or how good we are in a role uh, as a, maybe a a physio performance team say by our availability, because we know availability tends to be associated with, you know, performance. But the problem with that is that then if availability becomes the key outcome, the key key predictor of how good a job you're doing, how does that show up for you in your work every day? Your primary thing is, um, how can I stop this person getting injured? Your starting point becomes almost, do I need to wrap that person in cotton wool? How can I manage loads so that, oh, there's potential risk here. How can I stop this person getting injured? And so it can shift a mindset. You know, and I've, I've had examples many times but i've had examples where i've had head coaches phone me about their medical team and say phil you know you got to help me out here out of a, a panel of say you know eight nine people who, who play in a back line i've got three available for training because the medical team are telling me there's a high risk they may um get injured today because they've had a spike in their running meters you know and the coach is saying well you've got to get this sorted out or, or um, you know, I, I, I'm out of here. And so I think at times well, that the, net, the downside of that, you know, it's, it's born out of really good intentions, isn't it? But the downside of that is that then what we can do is that we, we chronically undermanage and we medicalize a mindset of performance where we become really risk averse. We don't uh, expose our athletes or our players to the the risk that they need to be exposed to in order to build robustness. And actually, within Irish rugby, you know, a few years ago, we moved and said we, we want to move away from even using the word injury prevention or the term injury prevention. And we, we, it's it's all about how we build robustness because robustness is a positive word. Robustness is about getting better. In order to be robust, I've got to build stuff. And and if you're a rugby player, you've got to be robust. You, you know, and I can think of lots of uh, people in different sports, lots of sports, not just in rugby, who the main focus has been about availability. And so we manage people from one week to the next because they're an important player. And so we'll, we'll manage them because they're carrying niggles. And so we just manage them from one week to the next, all the while this person's becoming chronically underloaded, um, less robust. And, and actually, they just wheeled out for the games and they never really complete a full training week to week. But hey, guess what? Your availability stats look great. Is that a good job? Yeah. I'm not sure, you know. Yeah, I think that's exactly the sort of conundrum that that most people most people toy with. You know, it's it's finding that um, that balance between you know where do where do you set your sort of risk uh, you know slider, so to speak. Are you, are you happy that if you're going to push hard uh, and and train harder and try and be stronger and fitter, that you will acceptably lose a few people through injury versus you know, wrapping people up in cotton wool and, and as you say, perhaps not being ready to perform, um, which is the ultimate reason for us being here as well. So, yeah, um, an interesting balance, certainly. It's a, it's, a, it's a tough one, Ben, and Joe, the, the term I use often is, you know, distinguishing between managed availability and thriving availability, two very different things, do you know? Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I, I, if, if you're winning games, 
and people are playing really well and you're building stuff and you've got an availability of 80%, where if you somebody else has an availability of 90% over a season and they're not, which one are you going to choose? You know, and um, now yeah. obviously if you get 90% and win, that's even better. Um, but you know, it's it's uh, there's a there's a great um, uh, uh, Nickel Van Dyke who, who many people may know works with us at Irish Rugby, um, and Nickel uses the example when talking about sort of risk management a little bit, like you know, uh, he uses cigarettes and smoking, you know, and says that that we know that smoking cigarettes. Can cause lung cancer. So hey, if if you don't want to get cancer or you want to reduce the risk, just don't smoke. Well, we know that running fast is is dangerous for hamstrings potentially in injuries. We know that sport will get injured. So the easy way is just don't do it. But that's not an option. So actually, what we're we're saying almost in the analogy of the the cigarettes is we're, we're not saying you know don't smoke. We're saying how many cigarettes can I smoke before I get cancer? <laughs> you know, and that's not a, an advert for for smoking clearly, mm. but. But it's that mindset, how much can I do without breaking this person rather than our starting point being let's let's not get injured. And it's a very different place to be. And I really think then that if you can couple that with a, a more long-term view of athlete and player development, that's that's way more effective in the longer term. Yeah, I totally side with that, that viewpoint, Phil. Um, I think, you know, some of the things that, we do on a regular basis in football you know we, we try and expose people to to maximum speed or a percentage of max maximum speed um and just recently it's been very difficult because of the congested fixture schedule to actually you know get a dose of speed into into players um you know when's the right time to do it um you know and do we do we have this kind of understanding from the coach's perspective and the player's perspective as to why we're asking them to, you know, sprint on certain days, as to why we're asking them to do some sort of posterior chain exercise, you know, especially at the back end of a long season. Um, but we have to be kind of brave enough to believe that we're doing it for all of the sort of right reasons, which is to, you know, enhance performance and, and actually, you know, mitigate against a higher level of injury risk. But sometimes you have to sort of balance that with, you know, right now we're at the end of a season some players have played, uh, you know, 900 minutes plus in 10 games, you know, back to back to back. And so making them sprint is possibly not the best thing to do with one or one or two weeks left to go of the season. So, yeah. Totally. Uh, and, and then if you think, you know, how, how often, you know, you can start to look at this and with, with like all the data that we have, right? how often or what's the likelihood of them sprinting? And again, how often will they be exposed to that in, in game situations? So in, in a sense, um, how much tolerance have you built up? What's the likelihood? If you have an idea of the likelihood, then you can start to have a bit of an evaluation of the risk. Um, and and then you, you piece that together with how much more do we ask the, the person to do? Uh, we, you know, we, we all have standards that we probably work towards we have agreed things that we aim for but but hey really good people are able to make good decisions around you know what this week you just look like you're slightly overcooked and to get you to go and do those extra high speed or you know sprint meters is potentially just going to nudge you over the edge and tell you what the intelligence thing there and but but that comes with experience and being able to have good conversations with players with coaches with the wider support team doesn't it yeah exactly exactly um you know, part of that, part of that we spoke about just there is like this, this education piece as well, and and you know, building that relationship with the athletes, building that relationship with the coaches, um, and the sort of communication 
aspects to our, our, our roles and what we have to do. Um, you know, we, we probably like to think that we're pretty good communicators most of the time, but you know, context and other things and results can interfere for sure. Um, I know we spoke before about this. You said we're, we're probably not as good as we think we are at communicating. Can you just kind of explain uh, to the listeners a little bit about what your, what your thoughts are there? Yeah, you know, it's it, it's interesting. There's lots of layers to this, uh, Ben, and we can unpack if you want. But it, you know, sure. over the years, you know, whether it's in my current role, speaking with various head coaches about you know the the performance of their medical team and and reviewing uh, performance, or whether it was working across various Olympic sports, talking to uh, PDs or performance directors, that is, or uh, head coaches around their medical teams. A really consistent pattern keeps coming up, and, and perhaps it's a loaded question. But when you say, you know, okay, well, what's the feedback? What work ons would are there for them? What, what would you like to see any any improvements? And and I would say, almost pretty much one hundred percent of the time, the coaches or the performance say, if they could just get better at communicating, if they could just get better at relating what they're doing to performance and um, being really effective communicators and and then, you know, the funny thing is when you have that conversation with the members of the performance team whether that's the medical team or you know snc team or whatever everybody thinks they're really good at communicating you know that's that's the other and you know this probably stands for myself as well you know and and i think that just then asks the question about the, the role of being a really good communicator and particularly interpersonal communication. And I, and I think one of the big things, I actually had a conversation earlier today with someone at a, uh, at a premiership club and just saying, you know, learning and, and having the ability to flex your communication style appropriate to the person that you're talking to. You know, so can you coach and do, or do you just speak with medical jargon that stuff that seems unrelated to performance? Do they get what it means and, and what does it really mean for them? Do we understand how people like to be communicated to? You know, I've worked with coaches, I'm sure you have, who are super detail-oriented. They want everything. They want to know detail. They want to know rationale behind everything. They they'll unpack stuff. And if you don't go armed with that detail, it's not going to probably be a really effective um, form of communication. I've got other coaches going, don't tell me the detail, just give me the bottom line. And now what does that mean for me? And so learning that and, and learning what people need from you, I think is is really important. And, and you know, underpinning it, you know, what's what's the number one thing in, in good communication? Bottom line is it's, it's listening, really, isn't it? And I think we're really in a hurry often to give our viewpoint. We're really in a hurry to, to get the message across and maybe don't pay attention to or listen to the verbal and the non-verbal signals that we're getting back from coaches and what they're really asking, what they really want to see and what's helpful for them in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, I've worked here now with uh, four different coaching regimes and each coach has a different way that they want to receive that information. And, and you're right, having a, a flexible style um, certainly helps. Um, you know, some some coaches are very time poor. Um, you know, because they've got so many other things to think about, uh, and it's it's almost our job to try and clean that up for them, and and you know, give them the information in the way they want it at the right time in the right place to allow them to clear their mind for all of the other demands of being a coach and coaching team. So, yeah, have you have you come across any kind of um, situations or examples, perhaps where you know? 
your communication has been put under pressure over like let's let's take a, an athlete example um with a coaching team it's so so many i i think that you know i cringe and, and you know when i think of how i've gotten it wrong on many occasions you know and um, <laughs> what one role that i play at the moment is the sense of being able to have reviews or to to bring groups together to to review what's happening around a player or so some challenge or complexity within a within a player or an athlete is to try and let's get the, the you know the performance services team together the coaching team together often the athlete and say okay can we make a plan about how we move it forward to to, to facilitate those discussions and and I, I was in uh, one of those meetings reasonably recently in the last year or two and. We had a, you know, the medical team showed up with a, a really, you know, extensive pro, uh, a presentation on the progress of the, the athlete and presented, you know, to, to on, in minute detail the medical background. Hey, I'd be honest, I, I got it and was it, but I started to tune out and was getting a little bit bored and the coach was going like, do I really need, I don't have a degree in physiotherapy you know, I'm not really here, just what's wrong with them type thing. And then they presented, well, hey, here's some rehab plans. Here's plan A, we could do this. Here's plan B, we could do that. And maybe, you know, plan C. And, and at this point, I just watched the, the coaches went, hey, let's just be really clear. There is no plan B. He's playing next week. <laughs> well, like plan B doesn't exist. You can scrap that one. I, I just need to know how I, I can have him for the next four weeks because it's a critical time in the season. I need him. And then we can figure out how to do it. I went, okay, now we frame the discussion. The discussion now, yeah. how can we facilitate this player playing for the next four weeks? But what that's not going to do is get him better So in the longer term. So how, what is the least amount that he needs to do to be able to perform at the weekend? Then is there a window after this four weeks that you tell me are really important? It was a European window, a really important uh, window. Is there, a, is there an opportunity after that to build some time into the schedule where you can commit to, where we can then look at addressing some of the deficits? And, and actually then all of a sudden we're, now we're having a conversation. And uh, you know, there's it's a it's a really good example of not having looked at it from a coach's perspective, not really having listened to what the coach wanted. I mean, it, it, we probably should have gone into that meeting knowing that there was no plan B. <laughs> you know, there, there only is one plan. Now the conversation is how can we make this plan work for everyone, as opposed to you know showing people how much you know. Because I think so much of communication at times can be people are in a hurry to tell you how much they know. And they're in a hurry, almost they, they, they don't really listen. They listen enough to get it, but it's really they're waiting for their turn to speak, if that makes sense. And so I think the power of really listening properly it, it is often underestimated because, you know, cancel culture doesn't work, work in the real world. It's, it doesn't work in a sports team environment. You can't say, you know, I don't agree with that. You, you're gone. You've got to show up the next day and the next day and you've got to make this work. And I think then when we really learn to listen and um, I actually think it's really powerful that people are really listening to you as well, what a difference that can be. So having really good, meaningful conversations um, that, that get to the heart of the matter, that deal with the, the real issue. Um, and so often we, we, we work around the edges because we haven't listened to what the real issue is at the heart of it, whether that's from the coach's perspective or even from the athlete's perspective. So there's just something that came to me there as you were speaking was this this idea of the sort of maybe the environment for the, the conversation as well. You know, we're talking about the con the context here, but then also the 
the kind of meeting place, if you like, for these conversations. Do you do you do anything to sort of engineer a better environment for for, for a conversation? I, uh, really, that's a really good point, Ben. I think, and I, and I think it's something that you know we 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 need to know where we can create the right mood. I think mood is really important. Thing to pay attention to the mood in a room and what's and, and and the environment. Therefore, can help influence that mood. And you get a mood of openness, of collegiality. Um, when you're not coming in, you know, I've, I've had meetings where players have been involved in potentially, or coaches have been involved, and they felt like they've almost come in on the defensive because it's been on somebody else's turf or there are lots of people sitting around in a room and it's almost like they're sitting in the middle trying to answer a question. So I think being really intentional around how you construct some of those meetings. So for, for me, it's really important to say we want to have a meeting about and you define the purpose of that meeting or that conversation I need to talk to you about. So we're not, we're, we're pre uh Warning people, we're, we're able so that they're not needing to feel like they're coming in defensively. We give them time to prepare for it. You know, if, if, you know compare the, the thing of, you know, if you had a head coach say to you, um, Ben, I've got some problems here, I really need to talk to you later. Versus, um, Ben, you know, I've been thinking about these challenges that we're having and I want to discuss about it with you later. How differently do you show up to that meeting, and how you know what do you bring yourself into that? One potentially is defensive because you go crap, what have I done wrong? And the other one is yeah. let's look and find solutions. And so I think creating that um, non-physical environment is important, but then actually having it in a space which facilitates interaction where it's pretty equal. I'm, I'm a big fan of you know sitting around, genuinely around a table in a in a, in a circle or, or, or something that we can do. Um, I'm not saying we all sit in a circle and join hands or anything. Don't before, before we go there. But um, I do think that but but paying attention to that and and then at the beginning naming, hey, this is what we want to talk about. These are the key. If if we have a good meeting today what will it look like and i think that yeah. little bit of what we call i you know i call it contracting at the beginning of a, some of those meetings okay if if we leave this room and it's been good what's it felt like what's it been you know what 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 has a good meeting been like what what have we achieved and um, what are the things that we need to agree and at the end of it just checking again go okay have, have we have we got the right decision here is everyone happy is there anything that we've missed um, and and really learning to pay attention to what's going on in a room, and particularly if that's with a you know a performance team, for example, or with your team, the, the ability if you have to have really good meetings, I think is is I think it's a, a super strength for people working in performance. Yeah, fantastic, absolutely fantastic. I was just literally reflecting as you were talking before about some of the mistakes I've made with you know the 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 setup, the the sort of. You know, the intentional part of setting up a meeting and as you say the barriers I mean I remember opening my laptop and the barriers instantly went up because every time I open a laptop it was associated with a problem you know or if I walk into a, a room and, and start to speak the coach also automatically thinks there's an injury that's happened so you know it's it's definitely trying to create a consistent environment that's non-threatening you know, where you're going to share information on a regular basis, not just when it's bad information as well, I think is, is something that I've learned in the last couple of years for sure. Yeah, that, that's really brilliant, um, Ben. And I think then if, if there are these cues, as you described, like the opening of the laptop or, oh, here he comes, people are injured again, then what, what can be really good then is just start to think about, can I change the script? What are the cues for certain responses? What are the cues for certain behaviours? So that, as you say, that the conversations that we're having aren't just when there's a problem. 
you know, but we yeah, have yeah. that you know the, the laptop can be open or closed so that that I see you you start to go to things with a much more blank page if you like and and, and create that environment I, I think it's it's really critical and you know I'm also a big believer in that concept of you know Alex Ferguson talked about you know leading by a hundred different conversations do you know, I really like that idea I, I, you know it's the it's the conversations that we have through the day it doesn't have to be the big meetings either do you know but but having regular conversations that are regular touch points that establish connection under uh, demonstrate understanding and facilitate if you like this this sense of we're in this together so that having lots of conversations where you get a sense for where people are what's important to them that you're able to communicate what's important to you that actually you know that as a as a way of leading either leading a team or or, or influence i think is, is hugely important and, and and if you you know I, I know people and they store it all up for the one big meeting do you ever get that you know and so yeah. you meet and they come with all of the things and you go oh man he's, do, he's doing it again you know <laughs> I feel like I'm being ambushed with a hundred different things to deal with but I've already spoken to you four times this week why did you save it till now do you know can we just have these conversations as we go rather than storing them up for the big meeting I think you know those sorts of practices are they, hey, they're, to me they're uh, I'd, rather, I'd rather do lots of little things than, than the big one you know yeah 100% I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here. I did warn you I was going to do this to you uh, before, but I was speaking to a I was speaking to a NFL team the other day, and and we were talking about uh, no surprise here, but we were talking about a shoulder injury, and um, they'd done some really interesting work uh, and through a few of our conversations, and what they'd actually done with this one player was they'd done quite a lot of work early on post operatively, um, and when they referenced it, they said. Yeah, he was doing some of Phil Glasgow's stuff. And the player had actually been doing very regular isometric sort of sub-maximal loading throughout throughout a 24-hour period to the point where he was so diligent that he was actually sort of setting his alarm clock and doing some exercises at two or three in the morning. And I said, oh, really? Is this Phil Glasgow stuff? So there you go. Perhaps you can explain what that's all about. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I love hearing stories like that when you never know how your name's being used. Um, yeah, and, you know, a lot of people may be familiar with, um, or some of you may not be familiar with, um, over the years we've done a lot of talk around the sort of the idea of optimal loading, how we can load tissues effectively, and particularly around tissue loading and healing um, in return to performance. And, and, you know, what we know is that I think that the body is made to move and it, and it responds really well to mechanical stimulus. It's really finely tuned for that. And so it's probably one of the most powerful things that we have and for, for any part of uh, activity. So, you know, in that context, one of the things that I think is that you know, to optimize loading, I often say optimal loading is early loading. So getting in early, but, but what we know is that because of, you know, the, the nature of the tissue integrity, the, 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 the pliability of the tissues and the increased creep, for example, the the healing process that that the tissue can't tolerate lots of load, even lots of submaximal load given over time can can be you know really challenging for the tissues. 
But what we do know is that if I give a little small stimulus and then I take that stimulus away, then the body will respond to it. And then I give another one, the body will respond. So I have high frequency, low intensity stimulus, so little and often, if you like. And so by getting in really early with little and often type stimuli, I think starts to build, give a, con- it's like a constant little probe to the system. You've got to get better. The cells, you've got to adapt. You've got to, to facilitate really good healing. And so... I know the NFL team you're talking about, and uh, I did some work with the guys there talking about this. And so uh, you know, we would use it for ligamentous injuries, for tendon, for muscle, for anything. Just this, this idea of getting in and giving a stimulus, but then taking it away again and then giving it again. And there's been lots of uh, really nice studies looking at bone loading, for example, that have shown that if, if I give the same stimulus, the same number of um, f- uh loading bouts if you like um over time in one bout or even over two or three bouts versus giving it over 10 bouts i get way way more adaptation with the 10 bouts that i'm going to get with the one two or three bouts um because it's this idea of you know accommodation and that you're getting a new stimulus and then you respond to another new stimulus now as you progress to later stages, the tissues are much more tolerant. You need to increase way higher loads um, so that you're wanting to raise that ceiling of tissue capacity. So you've got to work really hard. And so because you're working hard and putting higher loads, the frequency has to drop right down. So potentially you might drop that frequency down to twice a week. But actually in the early stage of really low level intensity stuff, you know, doing that 20 times a day, hey, now we're really starting to give a stimulus. I'm, I'm not I'm not as convinced, I have to say, about getting up in the middle of the night. I, I think <laughs> probably getting a good night's sleep is, is maybe a bit more important on that one. But um, but hey, you have a testament to his his diligence on it. And it, it's also really nice to to hear feedback of that and hear examples of that from people that I've, I've seen it. I've talked to a number of people that the difference it, it makes in terms of providing a foundation. And, you know, hey, it doesn't change the world, but it might make the difference between being back in, you know, six weeks rather than in eight weeks or, you know, or a week earlier to make that uh, important game. Potentially, you know, and, and not even just in terms of time frames, but the quality of the tissue when you are back, I think it gives us much more robust, resilient tissue in the longer term. Yeah, that's exactly what they were saying, actually. They felt that they'd shaved off probably two weeks off their overall uh, return to return to performance with this particular player, which they did put down to working very early post-op, um, you know, almost to the point where you know, the surgeon the surgeon themselves would probably not be happy that they were doing this work. But um, that, that sort of raises a question as well. Like how how soon do you start? Obviously, it's a bit of a general question. I'm you know, not talking specifically here, but let's say we've got a, a surgery. How com- how soon after a surgery are you comfortable as a, as a sort of window to start that sub-maximal, low-level, high-frequency loading? Yeah, um, I, I th- Obviously, very dependent on the surgery and then the, the location. Yeah. But, um, I, I think there's, there's two big things that will influence my decision-making around that is how stable the area is. So the, is the tissue really unstable? But if, hey, if I've, if I've sewn something together and, and put some anchors in, you know, then it's pretty stable. And actually, if you if you stand in the operating theater and watch the surgeons as they test it after they've anchored it in, they're putting way more force through that thing that I will by the submaximal loading. 
Okay, so yep. it's been tested to that tensile stress by the surgeon when the person is unconscious and has no muscle tone to protect it whatsoever. And so I yep. think that that so I'm I'm pretty confident from that perspective. If there's a lot of associated pain and edema, you know that's that's going to be a challenge. But but even then, I think the movement and the the load is a facilitator of reducing pain and reducing edema. I really do. So you know certainly. Within, with you know, with the, after twenty four hours, you know, give them the first day off and then start loading. And you know, and, like we think of the obvious ones on this, that if if it, if I can take an eighty year old you know, person, man or woman, who has um, laying on a on a theater, had their hip cut open, you know, the hammer and chisel job of taking out and giving them a total hip replacement, sewing them all up again. And I get an 80-year-old on their feet loading through that, walking after the day one. Yeah. yeah. Really? Do you know, I think, do we are we not comfortable at saying I can go low-level loading to some of our athletes, you know, after they've had 24-day hours to essentially recover from an anesthetic or or from just the surgery itself? So if they're, if they're well enough in terms of medically well enough, then straight in. Yeah, I think that supports exactly what I think as well. I think the the earlier the better, obviously, given all of the normal caveats there. And I think that's a really useful thing. Also, it, it's backed up by, you know, some some people that I know, like Len Funk, shoulder surgeon in the UK, who who you know had a physiotherapy background before he before he became a surgeon. He he's a real advocate of early loading, you know, uh, within safe zones post op for better outcomes longer term. Uh, and then you've got some of the stuff which I know you've spoken about before, the, the hamstring stuff now around, you know, getting some load in earlier, um, certainly than we would perhaps normally think about. Uh, and I, I, I can only see benefit in terms of that tissue's capacity to then perform at the higher loads weeks later, you know. And obviously the research hasn't quite corroborated that, that that's the best thing for hamstrings yet with a massive cohort. But early signs are, I think it's Jack Hickey's work, um, early signs are that his, his approach is, is improving perhaps not the time to return, but maybe the, the, the strength of the tissue or the, or the force produced when they do return to the sport. So that for me is a, is a positive benefit of early loading. Uh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, muscle is super adaptable. And, uh, most muscle injuries will affect a portion of the muscle. If we take a hamstring, for example, relatively low load activities are like you know, walking around, move, um, doing some really basic exercises, put minimal stress through the tissue itself. And actually, I, I'm convinced that a lot of those exercises in the early stages are, are about overcoming neuromuscular inhibition. We're starting to have a little bit of tensile load, which will stimulate um, some adaptation. But the actual tensile load that you're putting through the tissue and the potential to damage the tissue, if it's applied in a very controlled way, it's, you know, the chances of that are really slim. You know, we we probably ask them to do more in a clinical assessment at times than we might ask them to do in rehab, of whether that's, you know, a minor muscle test or getting them to you know, even just walk to the practice. So I, I, I absolutely think that, that the muscle can cope with a lot more than we think uh, in the early stages. And if you, you have the appropriate 
clinical measures around it to ensure, and the you know, common sense approach, that you're not exposing people to really high-speed stuff. So I, I, my take on it is that it's the high-speed stuff at slightly longer lengths, but particularly the velocity, that'll, that'll be mo- most risky for those muscles. So if I'm working in a controlled way through range, I'm paying attention to the simple provocation, the quality of the movement, then actually I think then using our simple principles of you know, muscle rehab and muscle strengthening i think we can start to move that that's essentially what jack has done he's taken simple basic routine exercises and used normal measures of if you can do um, you know three sets of 10 12 or, or or whatever depending on the particular exercise and if you can do that well through range without difficulty then you progress you know so it's it's not it's not that um surprising in one way it's just the fact that you're starting it a little bit earlier and and you know uh, chris chris blakely who's a who's a colleague that had uh, done uh, he's a researcher at uh, or an academic at ulster university and i have done some research with chris in the past and uh, remember we laugh one day we we we, uh, we wrote the paper uh the police acronym about 10 years ago um now in terms of the you know, protection optimal loading nice compression elevation we wrote that uh, together but i remember at the time when we were coming up with that acronym um uh, having a, a over dinner and saying you know we could come up with an equation for the optimal timing of loading uh, taken from um you know caveman if you like and so it, it, it may be something like you know the the nature of the injury um uh, you know and compared with the the number of dependents i have uh, related to the food the food reserves that i have i might need to go out and pack something you know and, and so actually I tell you, what, you couldn't lie around and and um, convalesce for very long with some of these injuries in the past you probably ended up having to move and have to keep going uh, if you like and i think that's how our bodies are are, are, are made i think that's that's what we need to we need to think about um what can i do rather than an absence of load like how much load can i put through this safely and well that'll facilitate healing yeah that's great um that's really really clear i think on that and something that i I think we'll we'll develop as we build more more research but in practice it's this idea of sort of transferring those lessons learned from these smaller kind of case studies and perhaps small group research work that then you actually have to then go and apply it yourself um, and, and, you know, problem solve and, and understand that, that kind of how that will influence your decision-making process. I know, um, I know that you're sort of someone who, who is very interested in, in, you know, learning and the sort of practical aspects, I think, and, and the application of learning. Um, you, you talked before when we spoke about this idea of knowing is doing. Um, can you explain a little bit about what you what you mean by knowing is doing? Yeah, um, you know, I think I think somewhere in our educational background, and I understand why. You know, this is not a not a, a taking a pop at anyone. It's but it's an observation. I think somewhere in our education, we we divorced um, this, this, the conceptual stuff from the do, the practical part of the doing. And, you know, actually, I, I used that term I heard myself the other day with my son and doing his, his maths homework, you know, and he says, yeah, I know. And as I said, well, you don't know it if you can't do it. So let's multiply some fractions. Could he do it? No, I said, well, then you don't know it. You will know if you know something if you can do it. 
you know, Maz yeah. is the really obvious one there, isn't it? But it's the same. Yeah. You can know about muscle rehab, but now can you do it? And then you don't really know it. Is you know, it is the bottom line. And I think there's this flawed understanding or this dichotomy between you know we take um, theoretical knowledge and practical knowledge. I would just say it's knowledge. Knowledge by definition has to be practical has to be embedded in who we are and how we interact with the world and you know i think part of that comes from our education part of it is limited a little bit by our language i fascinated looking at some of the you know, if you look at some of the you know aristotle stuff aristotelian views and, and the greek words for for knowledge is it's genosco which is much more broad ranging some of the other words like in hebrew the word yada you know good old seinfeld yada 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 uh, but but the interesting thing is there that, you know, that idea of knowing something is to know both objectively and subjectively, to to know it and engage with it experientially. Um, and so there's something in that is actually to know something is to discover it, to find it out for yourself, to know by experience. And, and, I, and I think that we have... Uh, Lots of people who have lots of head knowledge, we like that term, don't we? But we know it, but actually, do you really know it? And do you know what it's like? And, and I think to to really know and to do is that you know the detail for sure. You know the technical background, you know, you, you know but then you know how to apply it. What does that mean for me and how I have to act and what I need to do with that? And then how can I physically in, implement that into the world? And, then, and can I deepen my understanding of that so that it's, in a sense, it starts to shape who we are and how we interact with our, our, our teams with our athletes, um, with our coaches, with with whoever, and because we really know it, then actually it shows up differently, and we show up differently whenever we have to practice it. I think you can spot the people very quickly. You can quote all the papers, but can't do it. I would argue they don't actually know it. Do you know, um, and that can be quite controversial because people can see that as a criticism. But for me, it's more a it's more of a bit of a call to people to say, hey let's focus on this stuff because this stuff's really important as well. Um, and, and, you know, I think in a way our education um, approaches often as we move to, you know, really great research, academic stuff, and it's good, it gives us theory. But actually if we get into the, the higher degrees of research, that the whole point of PhDs, if you like, for me is to teach you a depth of learning so you really properly know something. And you, if you think of the things you know best, then you think of you and shoulders. Why, why do you do it? Because you've spent a lot of time learning stuff. You've tested stuff out. You've practiced things. Does this work? What does this look like? And you synthesize all of this and then you do it. And then as you do it, you start to know shoulders. And, and, and yeah. you really know it, you know. Uh, that's very different from going on a weekend course. Um, even though your courses are amazing, Ben, and going on a weekend, <laughs> have a couple of days, um, do you come away then and go, now I know shoulders? Well, you know it better, but you know, let's really start to get into the depth and know it really well. And, and I suppose that's that's part of the thing where I think we have we have lots of knowledge. We have it at our fingertips. It used to be that knowledge was power. I, I think I, I would shift that now and suggest that um, knowledge isn't power because everyone has it in their pocket on the phone. It's wisdom as power. It's the ability to join the dots. It's the ability to apply that knowledge and to live it out. becomes the real currency of today rather than before it was having theories. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely love that. You're um, you're obviously someone who's you know definitely uh, progressed and and explored and and been able to gain a lot of exposure to different 
you know, ideas and concepts through not only your work, but through your kind of studies and through your broader network and, and perhaps that kind of curiosity that you, you certainly have. And maybe from your perspective, um, you know, the idea of becoming a kind of better learner, you know, how have you, how have you shaped your own learning and what sort of advice can you give others around that so that they can, uh, perhaps like what we were just talking about, you know, improve their learning to impact on their, on their practice. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think it's that old thing about talent. You know, talent's overrated. You know, and I think actually people who are talented, if you like, are people who are good at learning. You know, and and if there's one skill that is probably the most important skill to build, it's a it's learning how to learn. Uh, if you like, so that you can take stuff and, and, and know it really well. And you know, I I think the first thing for learning for me at all, it's got to matter. Do you know, it's got to matter to you. It's got to be important. You've got to enjoy it. Um, if, if it doesn't matter to me whether I become good at this thing or not or know it really well, then I'm probably not going to be brilliant at it. I'll be okay. I'll pass myself. But it's got to really matter and enjoy it. So I think there has to be this thing. But but the other thing, side of that coin is actually sometimes by doing it and delving deeper into an area, you start to see things and, a, and a, you understand it and, a, and an enjoyment and a beauty in it that perhaps you wouldn't have if you hadn't taken the time to learn it. So so I think it's a it's a generative thing. But And and I think that one of the challenges, and you know, not, not to get too um, broad and philosophical about it, but I think one of the challenges we're all aware of uh, today is that with various algorithms tracking every click online and whether that's on social media or on or online or whatever it may be is I, I think that influences much of the content of, of what we see and so there is this real danger of going into or getting stuck in this bit of an echo chamber um, and so we only see the stuff that confirms our biases often we only read the the books that we are familiar with and all of our people of the friends and people suggest that are going to be important so actually i, I think it's super important to try to look as diversely as you possibly can to look for different sources and different things to as you said look at different approaches and examples of good practice i you know i finished my phd which i said was in physiology and muscle physiology and it was hard science but but immediately something within me went i don't want to get constrained to just being in pure hard science here so what's as far away from that as you can get and literally the week after finishing my phd i went to another university and said can i register for a master's in theology and philosophy because that's apparently <laughs> the other side of the brain. Um, uh, but it's not even, it's just helping us with different ways of thinking, different ideas. You know, there are, we work in sports and, and, and it's super to be specialist in a sport. But, but if I've lived my entire life just in baseball or just in football or just in rugby or athletics, then there's probably other stuff out there that, that potentially I'm missing I could learn. So it would be great to try and learn from other sports. Well, you know, and... And what are people really good at in other sports? Maybe not even just sport. What are people really good at in the arts or in business or in other areas? Because I think there are many common traits that, that sit across people who are really good. So I, I think the number one thing for me in, in being a good learner is to expose yourself to different challenges and different ways of thinking that stretches your cognitive capacity and helps you look at things from different perspectives. And, and I think that, you know, I've always been very, you know, 
need to probably stop talking, but I've always been very passionate about the idea of connecting the the thinking and research and learning to the doing, um, which is why I've always kept an academic roles and worked in research and teaching and worked in in sport and uh, and um, work practically because I think that just makes me better at both of those things um, and rather than focusing on one and I appreciate that's not for everyone but getting exposure to things. The other thing that I would would add to that as well is that I think it's really good to read stuff really pretty diverse reading and and we have this bit of a habit at times and I've been guilty of it of only reading stuff that's come out in the last couple of years or the popular book that everybody mentions. I think it's really important to go, well, something's been around for a few hundred years or something's been around for a long time and it's probably pretty good and it's probably got something in it that I might learn from. So I try to discipline myself that for every, you know, current book that I read, I read something old as well uh, and so that that um, keeps hopefully some roundedness in my thinking and my learning. And then in terms of that, Phil, is there, is there something that you can... From your experience, recent experience, uh, an, an old, an old book or something that's that's perhaps influenced you that, that might be interesting for the, the listeners. Yeah, and, and this is this is where sort of some of the the older philosophical te- texts can be. Uh, it can be hard going. Let's be honest. You know, it's not it's not easy sometimes. <laughs> and and there are some nice modern uh, language uh, stuff, but the, you know, there's some of the treatises of you know Aristotle has been around a long time. People talk about him a lot. And so it's probably not a bad idea even just to go kind of get a bit of a summary of what he's reading or look at, uh, at um, some of the, the, the stuff there. So I was reading some stuff recently um, of Aristotle. It sounds very highbrow, but it's actually not uh, really. But, you know, there was this concept of phronesis that he talked about. And phronesis, it talked about practical wisdom. And the idea, and he says, you know, what can be taught is general, not particular, was one of the things that stood out. For me, and he said, phronesis is this practical wisdom that helps you deliberate well, and then you actually go out and you perceive what's important, and then you act on it for this Greek term that he used for eudaimonia, which is for for the human flourishing, for the good of all people. So it might feel very good at the time, but it's a really good outcome. And he said, this is what marks out uh, uh, that basically a you know, person who's good, a good way of living. And so you, you, you read that and think, hey, that's super practical and applicable to today, isn't it? And, you know. Uh, um, and you know he's writing a couple of thousand years ago on that, so that that was is really good. But even stuff that you go back something like twenty, thirty years ago, good old, good old, you know, Jim Collins, good to great, it's been around 25, 30 years. Evan Harvard's have had successful people. But things stand at the time because they're good, and I think reading um, some of that stuff can be really helpful. That's a great uh, way to tie it all up. I think Phil, it's been um, it's been a real privilege to be able to talk to you today and i i i've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation um where where can the listeners find you or follow you we can put something in the show notes to to link to a couple of your bits and pieces but where's the best place for the listeners to follow you awesome yeah so um i have webs i have websites just all the w's phil glasgow.com uh, i'm on twitter phil glasgow and linkedin as well so more than happy to i, I enjoy conversation people i'm more than happy people want to reach out or, or connect i'm really happy with that yeah that's perfect phil once again um thanks so much for coming on and giving up some of your time and uh hope you hope you have a great uh, a great birthday with your son um today and um yeah thanks again 
Yeah, thanks, Ben. I really enjoyed that uh, conversation. It's really good, wide-ranging and uh, stimulating. Thanks for that. Big thanks to Phil for coming on today's show and good job to Ben hosting. It was just great to hear Phil's easy listening and incredibly pragmatic experience shared in a practical way. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode of Informed Performance. I, for one, certainly did. You can catch us next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.